In a world filled with spyware, ransomware, fish, and more, we need you to be the hero. In this podcast, information protection and security is bringing new ways to fight back against the dangerous actors looking to do digital and physical harm. We'll give you everything you need to know on a different topic of risk every month. Coming to you from IPS with love. Welcome to From IPS with Love. Our guest today is J.R. Allen, and he's Vice President of Accelerated Technologies at HCA Healthcare. We're going to talk about AI and its potential uh, for use in healthcare. So welcome, J.R. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. Um, so we've been hearing a lot in the past year about AI and chat technologies with mm -hmm. the release last year of ChatGPT. Um, but AI has been around since the 1950s, so why does it feel like we're hearing about it all the time now? Yeah, great question. So you're right, there's a lot of interest, excitement, anxiety, fear, all of, all of those things about it right now. Uh, there's a few good reasons. Like you said, AI has been around since the 1950s. In fact, the term was coined in 1956, mm -hmm. and uh, it actually represents a pretty broad set of technologies. I, there's a great definition I heard from a guy named Peter Norvig, who literally wrote one of the best textbooks there are on artificial intelligence, that AI is using computers to help us make really hard decisions faster. I think it's a great you know, definition of it because it leaves it pretty broad as to the types mm -hmm. of technology that there are. So the types of technology that have been built to do that over the years have changed. And um, as they've changed, they've gone through periods of lots of advancement and research through other periods, some known as the AI winters. Uh, that's when we, we hit the trough of disillusionment and realized what we thought was going to be great didn't have the impact it was, it was going to have. That happened in the 1970s, again in the late 90s and early 2000s. But in the last 15 years or so, one of the areas of AI that's really advanced is called machine learning. And with machine learning, you use a lot of data that you've collected from the past, and machines find patterns in that data so that they can tell you something that may happen in the future or provide some other type of information for you. And so a um, number of years ago, um, companies started using machine learning to try to do a pretty simple feature that's on your phone. If, if you've ever started writing an email, you may find that it suggests the next word to put on. Type ahead is what that's called. Mm. Um, that is actually a form of what's called generative AI, and it's an advancement in machine learning, um, which is different from previous usage, usages of machine learning. Um, and a lot of those, you're using historical data to try to predict something in the future about new data that you have, but this is generating new data, new content. Mm. That could be text in the case of ChatGPT. Um, it could be images in the case of an algorithm called Dolly, which is also from OpenAI. Mm -hmm. Well, that technology really started to advance in 2017 when Google released a new design to an algorithm called a transformer. So before that, you could only guess the, wor the next word for a few words back, or maybe 10, maybe 20, 50, but you hit a limit and couldn't mm -hmm. do it. With transformers, which besides being a really cool word and, and a cool show from the 80s, is actually took away that constraint. And so now it can guess the next word for a huge set of text or corpus of information and keep guessing it over and over. And that's what ChatGPT is doing. Now, after the advancement of transformers, uh, data scientists started building increasingly complex algorithms to do that. So much more data and much, much larger algorithms. 
Um, now those algorithms are essentially huge math problems with you know 130 billion parameters, which a human isn't going to figure out, but machines can do. And so data scientists were doing this for a number of years, but only they really saw it. And so then OpenAI had the brilliant decision last year to simply put a very basic website on top of it so anybody could ask it a question and suddenly see what these, these algorithms are capable of. Uh, with the advancements in the size of algorithms and the amount of data, it enables them now um, to do what we can all see them do on ChatGPT, which has captured the imagination of much of the world. And so suddenly we all can start to ask, what could this do for us? And, and that's where a lot of the excitement comes from. Oh, that's interesting. I really like that concept of uh, winters <laughs> and yeah. troughs as yep. a kind of a, um, a reaction to all the excitement. Uh, but let's actually back up a little bit. Tell me about your background and how did you get interested in AI? Yeah, sure. So my academic background is in computer science. So I um, went to school at UT Knoxville and then was a software engineer out of college um, mm -hmm. in Austin, Texas. I moved back to HC to Nashville and then HC about 18 years ago. So it's mm -hmm. been a little while now. <laughs> and I worked in the IT organization uh, building software with the supply chain side in Health Trust at HCA mm -hmm. for a while, for a number of years. And then... Um, eventually joined a what is now the Digital Patient Experience Group to work with a team to develop a patient portal for all of our hospitals at HCA called My Health One, mm -hmm. uh, which connected all the hospitals for patients. And then about six or seven years ago, within HCA's Clinical Services Group, the company was forming a data science team. I had been interested in that type of work for a while just from reading about it because <clears throat> I I've saw that Whereas in traditional software programming, we had to create instructions to say exactly what we wanted, you know, the computer mm. to do, the app, the, the software, whatever it might be. Whereas with data science and machine learning, we were building algorithms that could figure out what needed to happen. And just that concept seemed fascinating. And, and you know, I just sensed that, okay, that's probably where what we currently think of as software development, a lot of it will go. Um, obviously, you know, it's done many things faster than any of us anticipated, but it's been really fascinating. So my, <clears throat> I um, then got my master's in computer science through Georgia Tech with a specialization in machine learning just because it, mm. you know, forced me to learn how a lot of this, this <laughs> works. And, um, but, you know, what's happened over the last year with the release of a lot of these algorithms is just phenomenal to see and is changing, you know, how people use this technology in general. Right. I mean, we've seen how it affects everything from writing school papers, right, mm -hmm. um, for kids. It can write poems. People have tried to get it to write humor, I know. Um, so tell me, what, what, what about your experiments with it, with ChatGPT or other um, chatbots? Um, are you impressed by what it can do? I am phenomenally impressed mm. and amazed by what these can do. I, I think most people are. Some will have an anxiety at, at some point when they see what it does. One of, it's just a great time saver. It's an efficiency play in, in one way. So, mm -hmm. for example, instead of doing a search now on a traditional search engine, I often start with, with a large language model like ChatGPT because I don't have to then sort through lots of web pages to find the answer. I've found that as one you know, easy, great use of it. I've also used it to write code. Um, mm -hmm. I, we had our CFO um, within our IT organization had asked me if we had anyone who could experiment with some data. 
I used it to say, write me some code just to experiment with it, a prototype, and it did. Now, um, there are shortcomings, which we'll talk about a little bit. In that case, mm -hmm. it was using code um, from old versions of software for when the algorithm was trained. Oh. So there are some shortcomings, but you know, what a time saver to be able to develop code a lot, a lot quicker. So that's um, another great example. Now, you know, one thing that's important to note is <clears throat> depending upon which algorithm you use, and where you use that, the data, the questions you ask become data that can train them. Um, so when you know, you're looking to use large language models, in, in my case, for example, I never put anything about HCA's data in there or information, you know, we want to do likewise. Or if you have personal information, don't want to put it in because that's going to become potentially a response to someone que someone's question in the future. Wow, yeah, good cautions to, to think about. Um, uh, yeah, I've been very interested just in the last year about some of the discussions about what what this technology is good for and what it maybe has proven not so good at, right? Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned writing code. That's something it tends to be good at depending on what it's drawing from. What are some other things that it's really suited for? Yeah, great question. So one great use of large language models are to summarize large sets of data. We, we've actually found that pretty valuable here. We've got vast amounts of data at HCA. Mm. We could certainly have someone comb through it all, but isn't it nice when we can put in pages and pages and pages of data and say, what's the main point? It's great at that. Uh, it, is, it is also great at <clears throat> um, giving explanations because it has collected data from many different websites. It's found what's in common and can give you a pretty good explanation of different topics. And you can then, which is a third area, um, ask further questions. And what's fascinating with a lot of these models now is that as you ask questions, it gives it context about the conversation. And so subsequent answers can relate back to your original question. And so they are actually, um, they've gotten quite good at question and response scenarios where you continue to ask yeah. and so they retain the information um, through some of the features that actually in some cases were not even expected to come out of these large language models that, oh, wow. that have developed. Also, there are some things which large language models are not good at. Now, to understand those, it's important to know that when a large language model is developed or trained, it is completely dependent upon the data that you give to it. So depending on the data that goes in, you will get varying <laughs> levels of quality coming out. So for example, uh, one thing to consider is the time of the data that was put in. These have been trained in the past, not as of today. And so if, for example, an algorithm was trained with data through you know, late 2021, then that's the most recent it's gonna know. So if you use it to write code, it's going to use outdated libraries. Mm -hmm. If you look for answers around current events, you're probably not going to find them. And so it loses context of what would have happened in that case in the last two years. That's one thing to be aware of. Okay. Secondly, it will answer your questions with bias if there was bias in the original data. That's, that's a really important area that companies are, are researching now and being very careful with is, you know, imagine you have the world's knowledge and information and, and conversations in one place. It's going to be biased by everyone who had the conversations. Mm -hmm. And so um, as we develop solutions with these in products, we have to look for ways to measure is there bias in the responses coming out. Another area you'd want to consider is if you've got questions around a very um, niche subject it's possible there's not much data out there 
on that subject. And so if you ask a question, you may get a wrong response because it's trying to correlate it to something similar, which gets us to the last point that is when you get a wrong response, it can look incredibly confident. That's what we call a hallucination. And so it's important to always question what I'm getting back, does it make sense? And as, we're, as we look to build solutions and products with this technology, we always make sure that there is a human in the loop, a term which means there is someone, a human, continuing to check this all the time. Well, that's good to know that we're still needed. <laughs> and, and that does kind of bring me to my next question, kind of bringing it back to healthcare and in a general way. Um, what are the things in a clinical setting that AI would be really good at? Yeah, great question. So. And there are many different ways this is going to help us in the end. One that we know immediately is around clinical documentation. And so it is um, measured that on average it's possible that nurses are spending 50% of their time just writing clinical documentation. That's not what they went to school for. They went to school to help people, to take care of patients. And now they've we've created this dependency with the electronic health record system to where they're constantly having to put in, in documentation. So what if we could generate that for them? Like we said earlier, it's good at generating content and summarizing content to write that. So that's one of the areas that we've been focusing on recently among other areas that could be very impactful and helpful to our nurses and our patients. So uh, most recently, we've been working on a solution with a number of our nurses to generate what's called a bedside shift report. Now, when a nurse um, goes off shift, another nurse is coming on to take care of a patient. And so there's a process by which one nurse informs the other and tells them about what has been happening with the patient, what are the next steps to help them provide the best level of care. That can be very cumbersome to do. And they're required to review information in the health record system, write it down by hand on paper, and provide it over. So what we're looking to do is just automatically generate that for them. So we're running a pilot now where we've used large language models to generate a timeline of care for that patient as well as information about their medications um, and any other concerns there may be so that's an easier transition. It's still, one nurse still has a face-to-face -face conversation with another, but we're just making it easier to have that conversation. That is so exciting because to think about, as you said, um, freeing up clinicians to do what they went to school for, yeah. right, which is to care for patients and not so much the record management or the back office type things. Um, but, you know, I have to ask you because we've all seen um, all the different robot movies, and, and I think they're just, there is a worry that as these machines get smart, uh, maybe too smart, you know, are they going to turn on us? <laughs> yeah, great question. I have, you know, I've heard about a documentary called The Terminator that I need to see. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm joking. Um, no, I, uh, it's, it's true. There are things we need to, to be cognizant of and watch for. I would say for the time being, though, there some of the more relevant concerns at the moment are with the technology that we have. Um, so, for example, concerns about privacy. We talked about whether or not everyone is aware when they ask a question, suddenly could their data be used? for others. Mm -hmm. um, is there bias in the data? Other topics such as job evolution, some might call it job displacement, but mm -hmm. um, how might jobs change with this? Because it is a very effective technology that can help us in many ways, which we haven't really figured out yet. Mm. And so um, in my mind, that's what we, we kind of need to focus on at the moment. Now, for 
like you said, for, for larger concerns, there are uh, many people who are worried about a rise of technology, a rise of robots, whatever, whatever that may be. And there's a, a concept known as the singularity, which this usually goes back to. And it's, it's the idea that as we create more generalized technology and algorithms, um, could it start to teach itself? And so traditionally, machine learning would, um, we would train an algorithm for a single purpose. So for example, we might want to predict what is the probability of a particular patient being discharged today. And so we would feed in data, it would give us one response. Well now, with large language models, one of the key ways they're different is that you can ask questions that you never trained it on. Because again, it just looks at historical data and guesses what's the next word and it keeps doing that. Um, and so the concern is, could it continue to generalize to where it could begin to train itself? And can there be a moment in time known as the singularity where suddenly it starts teaching itself faster, whatever it wants? Um, that's the concept. There's a great book called Super Intelligence, if you ever want to read it. I, I will, though, warn you, at times it could put you to sleep because it's pretty dense. <laughs> but if it scares you, it can keep you awake, so maybe it, it balances in the end. <laughs> but it's a fascinating take on many ways in, in which those things could happen and, and how we can prevent them. Um, but I, I will point to there have been technologies throughout history um, that have come about that people had these same types of concerns about. So, for example, trains. They seem pretty basic today. There was a time when people were very worried that humans were never made to move at 45 miles an hour and afraid of what it could do to humanity. Well, we, we've gotten past that, and we most of us drive faster than that <laughs> on the way to work in our, in our car each morning. Similarly, with electricity, there were concerns that... Um, electricity could go rampant and electrocute everyone, and it could be the demise of, of humanity. Obviously, again, we've learned how to control that. And so there are um, patterns that companies are taking to safeguard against what we don't want these technologies to do. That's somewhat reassuring. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, one last question before you go. Um, do you have a favorite robot from, from TV or from literature? Yes, great question. Mine would have to be, from back when I was a kid, R2-D2 from oh, Star Wars. I, classic, I, I yeah. preferred him among the Star Wars robots and others since then. Uh, it was for a few reasons. One, um, he was small and brave. He, could also, he only made beeps and whistles, but th they could be used to exhibit emotions. And I just always thought that was fascinating how the creators of the show did that. And then R2-D2, most of all, was helpful to anyone he worked with, supportive. It was also fascinating that he could speak, I think it was six million different languages, to, to try to bring different beings together. But most of all, he was a friend to whoever he interacted with. And I, I think that represents really AI at its best, what's possible when it's at its best. Oh, I love that. That's great. Okay, we'll look to R2-D2 then. Okay. Thank you so much, JR, for being with us today. And you can listen to this or any of our From IPS With Love episodes on all major podcast platforms, or you can watch the videos on Media Connect. Just search From IPS With Love.